All right, so as you've heard, we're studying one of the hardest and most controversial passages in all of Scripture this morning. Martin Luther so hated James chapter 2 that he wanted to throw the whole book of James out of the Bible. He said the book of James is an epistle of straw compared to the works of Paul. It gave him conniptions trying to study this passage. Uh, We can't throw it out. We've got to wrestle with it. So I I want to warn you this morning, it's going to be challenging. We're going to cover a lot of very difficult material in a very small amount of time this morning. So as we go through this morning, I'm sure there will be questions that come to your mind. I want to encourage you to write your questions down, maybe on a part of your bulletin or on a sheet of paper. Again, as Trey said, after the service, we're going to do something different. I'll give you guys about a five-minute break. And then we'll meet back in here, everyone who wants to, for an extended question and answer time. I'll take any question you have, James 2, Book of Romans, all the theology that's behind these different interpretations. I'll take your questions and answer them to the best of my ability. So please, as we go through, be writing your questions down for that Q&A time. I want to start out our coverage of this passage actually with a review from last week. Let's, let's review what we said last week. Last week we talked about how throughout the history of the church... Believers have confused the gospel of grace by adding works back into the equation. Last week, we saw that the apostle Peter did it. In his actions, he communicated that faith is really not enough to save you, to give you eternal life. You had to follow faith with obedience to the law. That's what Peter communicated. And and to Paul, that's a really serious error. So Paul wrote the books of Galatians and Romans to clarify the gospel of grace, to say without any doubt that salvation, getting into heaven, getting right with God, is by faith alone. Now we looked at Galatians last week. Let's look at Romans this week. Turn to Romans chapter 3. Start in Romans chapter 3. We're going to look at what Paul teaches us as he clarifies the gospel I want to start in verse 28. It's Paul's summary verse of the gospel, his summary of his argument. Verse 28 of chapter 3, Paul says, For we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. And remember, we studied that term last week, justify. To justify means to declare that someone meets a standard. And the justification of Galatians and of Romans is justification in the sight of God based on faith alone that results in eternal life. Now, as Paul taught us in the book of Galatians, there is actually only one human being who has ever earned justification from God. Who was that? That was Jesus Christ. Jesus is the only person who ever lived up to to God's standard of perfect righteousness. But the great news of the gospel is that God extends to us the justification that Jesus earned if we simply believe. If we believe that Jesus died for our sins and rose from the dead, then God extends Jesus' justification to cover us. We are covered in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. That happens by faith alone. We don't add any works to it. It's totally through the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. Now, Paul wants to illustrate that point to us, that our justification in the sight of God comes by faith, not by works. So he turns to a man named Abraham. Look with me at chapter 4. Paul says, What then shall we say that Abraham, our forefather according to the flesh, has found? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him 
as righteousness. Paul is looking at an event in Abraham's life that's recorded in Genesis chapter 15. I'll give you the summary version. God makes a promise to Abraham. He says, Abraham, I will multiply your descendants and make them as numerous as the stars of the heavens. And, and Abraham considers that promise and he chooses to believe that promise. And God responds to faith by justifying Abraham in his sight. He declares Abraham to be eternally justified in the sight of God. That has nothing to do with works, it's by faith alone. And so Paul draws the lesson from that in verses 4 and 5. Now to the one who works, his wage is not credited as a favor, as grace, but as what is due. But to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited as righteousness. To the one who does no works, who does no good works at all, but simply believes the good news of the gospel, God declares that person to be righteous. Paul could not be any more clear as he clarifies the gospel of grace. Eternal life being made right with God, justification in the sight of God, comes by faith alone. Our works add nothing to it. Our works are not required for it. It's based solely on the finished work of Jesus Christ. From Paul, the gospel of grace is really clear. But then we turn to James. And what was once so clear seems to become confused. Turn to James chapter 2. As we read James 2, you will notice that what seems so clear as we read Paul is maybe a little bit more complicated. It's a little harder to see what's going on here. As we read James 2, it's going to sound to you like James was looking at a copy of the book of Romans and simply wrote the opposite of whatever Paul said. That's basically what it sounds like as we read James. Look at verse 14. We'll start there. James says, what use is it, my brethren, if someone says he has faith, but he has no works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is without clothing and in need of daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and be filled, and yet you do not give them what is necessary for their body, what use is that? Even so, faith, if it has no works, is dead, being by itself. But someone may well say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without the works and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well. The demons also believe in shudder. But are you willing to recognize, you foolish fellow, that faith without works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up Isaac his son on the altar? You see that faith was working with his works, and as a result of the works, faith was perfected. And the scripture was fulfilled, which says, And Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. And he was called the friend of God. You see that a man is justified by works and not by faith alone. In the same way was not Rahab the harlot also justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way. For just as the body without the spirit is dead, so also faith without works is dead. Man, when you compare that to what Paul just said in Romans 3 and 4, it sounds like they are completely contradicting one another. Like they're totally disagreeing with one another. James 2.24, okay, Paul said, we maintain a man is justified by faith apart from works of the law. James responds, a man is justified by works and not by faith alone. How do you reconcile those? Then they both turn to the same guy, to Abraham, and James concludes the exact opposite lesson that Paul did. What do you do with that? Well, we do not have the luxury of kicking one of them out of the Bible. 
We've got to keep both Romans and we've got to keep James. So how do we explain away what looks like a contradiction? How do we fit James and Paul together? Well, in the history of the church, there have been three common interpretations, three usual ways of reconciling Romans and James. Now, what I want you to see as we go through here is all three of these make the same assumption. They assume that Paul and James are talking about the same thing about justification in the sight of God that brings about eternal life. They believe that Paul and James are both talking about how do we get to heaven. Okay, How are we going to reconcile it if Paul and James are talking about the same thing? Here's the three usual ways to interpret James 2. We have the interpretation of Roman Catholic doctrine. Roman Catholicism looks at Paul and looks at James and concludes Paul and James must have both each been speaking about only half of justification. And Roman Catholicism, justification in the sight of God is earned, is, it, it takes both faith and works. Justification is a future thing in Roman Catholicism. We won't be justified until we die and stand before God. And he evaluates our life. He evaluates our faith. He evaluates our work. If we have enough of them, then he justifies us and we enter heaven. If we don't, then we go to purgatory to pay off our debt. So in Roman Catholicism, works are required to gain eternal life. Faith is not enough. You need to have both faith and works to gain eternal life. That's how they understand James 2. Second major interpretation of this passage is held by Arminians. Arminianism is one branch of the Protestant church. It's represented by Methodists, by Free Will Baptists, by many Charismatics, and some others. Arminians hold that that justification is really by faith alone. We're justified by faith alone. But if we do not add good works to our faith, then we will lose our justification. In other words, God offers the gift of justification to anyone who has faith, but he reserves the right to take the gift back if they don't do good works. So in Arminianism, good works are required to keep your justification. If you want to stay right with God and go to heaven, you must do good works along with having faith. Third major view of this passage is held by Reformed churches. These are our Calvinist brothers. These are Lutherans. These are Presbyterians, Reformed, many other groups in America. They agree with Arminians that at the end of the day, to get into heaven, to be right with God, you must have works. Faith is not enough. You must have works as well. But for Calvinists, they don't believe that you can lose your salvation, so they interpret James 2 as a warning A warning that if you do not do good works, you will prove to God that you do not have faith. Okay, that's Calvinism. Faith justifies us, but the faith that justifies us is always followed by good works. Good works are required to prove before God that we have faith. If you don't have good works, you prove you were never a believer to begin with. You prove that you were either lying when you said you were a Christian or you were deceiving yourself. Okay, so notice in all three typical interpretations of James chapter 2, James 2 becomes a reason to bring works back into the gospel. Works are required either to gain eternal life, keep eternal life, or prove my eternal life. I must have works or I don't go to heaven. In all three of these views, the gospel of grace becomes confused. Works get added back into the equation. That's what grieves me about these views. All three of them, the gospel becomes clouded. It's not just Roman Catholicism that is clouding the gospel. We talked about that last week. It's many well-meaning Protestants. 
Many great teachers in the Protestant church, including Luther, including Calvin, including a guy named John Piper, a guy who many of you read voraciously, a great teacher, a great writer. Let me start by just saying very clearly, I love John Piper. I have benefited immensely from the writings of John Piper. He's a pastor up in Minnesota, but he's well-known throughout the world. His books have benefited me immensely. Many times when I'm preaching, you guys are actually hearing through me something John Piper came up with. He's awesome. He's a great teacher and communicator. Problem is, John Piper is making the same mistake that the Apostle Peter did. He is using James 2 as a reason to bring back into the gospel our works. Let me give you some examples. Sometimes John is incredibly clear. When Piper's looking at Romans 3 and 4, at Galatians 2, look at what he concludes. Justification is by grace alone, not mixed with our merit, through faith alone, not mixed with our works, on the basis of Christ alone, not mingling his righteousness with ours, to the glory of God alone, not ours. John, that's perfect. That is the gospel of grace. Justification is by grace alone, through faith alone. That's right. That's in his book, When I Don't Desire God. But then look at what John says in Desiring God. These are just some of the conditions that the New Testament says we must meet in order to inherit final salvation. We must believe on Jesus and receive him and turn from our sin and obey him and humble ourselves like little children and love him more than we love our family, our possessions, or our own life. This is what it means to be converted to Christ. This alone is the way of everlasting life. Okay, John, so do I go to heaven by faith alone? Or do I go to heaven by faith plus perfect obedience plus complete humility plus perfect love? How do I get to heaven? Sometimes he's clear when he's looking at Paul, but then he gets very confused when he looks at James. Let me give you another example. A quote I totally agree with from when I don't desire God. In the courtroom of God, my guilt for sin is removed by Christ's blood, and my title to heaven is provided by Christ's obedience. But then, in Brothers We Are Not Professionals, a book written to pastors like me, the salvation of the elect depends on their not denying Christ and on their enduring in faith and obedience. For only by feeding on the word can you grow, and only by growing can you persevere and attain final salvation. So John, do I get into heaven based on what Jesus did, his blood, his payment on the cross, or do I get into heaven by my faith plus my obedience plus my growth throughout my life? Piper's become confused in his presentation of the gospel because he has misread James chapter 2. I think that what John is doing here is the unavoidable outcome of all three common interpretations of James 2. If works are required either to gain or keep or prove eternal life, then in the gospel, faith really isn't enough. You must have faith and works when you stand before God. Fortunately, I think there's a fourth view of James 2. I think all three of these views miss the point of James 2. All three of them assume that James and Paul must be speaking about the same thing. I don't think that's a good assumption. I think rather than assuming that, what we should do is start with context. Now, as we go through James 2 this morning, I want you to to get a sense of James 2. I also want you to get a sense of how you should tackle hard passages, The way that you tackle a hard passage, whether it's James 2 or Hebrews 10, don't ever start with the chapter that's hard. Start with the book as a whole. As Professor Hendricks taught us at seminary, the three most important tools for understanding a hard passage are context, context, and context. 
You use the book as a whole to understand its parts. So let's do that. I want to give you what I think is a better view. It's based on the overall context of James. The first question you ask when you're trying to discover the context of a book is who is it written to? Who is the audience of this book? Turn with me to chapter 1 of James. We'll start in verse 2. James says, Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. Look at what we learn just in those two verses. First of all, James is going to call his audience brethren. He's going to do it 15 times. Three of those times, he's going to call them beloved brethren. That's the term you use in the early church to describe believers, your brothers and sisters in Christ. Second, notice that he talks about the testing of your faith. If they don't have faith, then verses 2 and 3 make no sense. The whole point is you have faith, you should rejoice in trials because trials test your faith, they prove your faith. He's going to say a similar thing in chapter 2, verse 1. Look with me there. My brethren, do not hold your faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ with an attitude of personal favoritism. He says, you have faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ. He's assuming that his audience already has faith. In other words, James is writing to believers. He's not writing to people who he thinks are unbelievers. What's really significant to me is actually not even on this list. I think the most significant thing, if if James was worried that his audience either were not truly believers or were losing their salvation, guess what? He doesn't do a very good job in this letter of correcting that problem because guess what is missing from the book of James? Any reference at all to the gospel. Nowhere in the book of James does he tell them, does he remind them that they need to believe in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. He never points them to the gospel. This is a horrible book if he's writing to unbelievers. He's not. He's writing to believers. Why is he writing? Why does James take up pen and paper and get busy writing this letter? Well, as you read the book of James from beginning to end, what you discover is that he's writing to believers who are really struggling. In the verses we read just a moment ago, chapter 1, verses 2 and 3, we saw that they're struggling with trials, with persecution, with suffering and difficulty in life. Actually, what they're struggling with most of all is is not trials, it's actually temptations. As you read the book of James, you find out there are a lot of sins that this audience is struggling with. Chapter 2, favoritism. Chapter 3, evil speech and jealousy. Chapter 4, conflict, selfishness, gossip, pride. Chapter 5, greed. James is going through these big sins. The whole book is convicting them about sin because guess what? They're not doing real well. James is writing to an audience of believers who are doing very poorly at resisting sin. Look with me at chapter 4. We'll start in verse 1. What is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? Is not the source your pleasures that wage war in your members? You lust and do not have, so you commit murder. You are envious and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask with wrong motives, so that you may spend it on your pleasures. You adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be the friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Skip to verse 7. Submit, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be miserable and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord, and he will exalt you. 
James is writing to a group of believers who are doing incredibly poorly. They are being unfaithful to God. Now, now notice for a moment verse 4. What does he call them? Adulteresses. What does adultery assume? Adultery assumes that you have a relationship with the person you're being unfaithful to. This is spiritual adultery, not marital adultery here. God is saying, you are my children. You are united to me. You are being unfaithful to me, so I call you adulteresses. Guess what? It is not possible for unbelievers to be called adulterers before God. They don't have a relationship with him. They they can't be unfaithful to God because they're not God's children yet. Verse 4 assumes that James is talking to believers, those who have a relationship to God, but they're being unfaithful to that relationship because they're giving in to sin. In fact, some of them have given in to sin for so long that they're beginning to fall under God's discipline. Look at chapter 5, verse 16. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. The effective prayer of the righteous man can accomplish much. Healed here is, the context is physical sickness. Some of them have sinned so much that God has punished them. He's disciplining them by making them physically ill. Now, now physical sickness is not not usually, not always the result of sin, but sometimes it is. If a believer gives in to sin over and over again, sometimes God will discipline them with physical illness to wake them up so that they'll return to him. So some of them are sinning so bad that they're experiencing God's discipline of sickness. Some of them are experiencing so bad, are sinning so bad that they're, in danger of something worse than sickness. Look at chapter 5, verse 20. Or verse 19, rather. My brethren, if any among you strays from the truth and one turns him back, let him know that he who turns a sinner from the error of his way will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. I think this is James' big purpose in the book. He's looking at an audience, brothers, believers, who are turning away towards sin, and he wants to turn them back because if he can turn them from their sin, he will save their souls from death. Now, that really gets us, that save your souls from death, gets us to the biggest problem in interpreting the book of James, the biggest mistake that people make. They get to the word save, and they get tripped up. When you hear me, a preacher, use the word save in church, what are you thinking about? What do I mean? I mean save you from hell, get you to heaven. Salvation in the big sense. person needs to be saved. That's what you jump to. You, you treat the word save like a technical term, meaning get to heaven. Okay, but in the Bible, it's not a technical term. In the Bible, when you see the word save, you're looking at a Greek word sozo that simply means to rescue someone. To deliver someone. So you always have to ask, deliver me from what? Well, in the Bible, there's lots of different senses of the word sozo, to save. It can mean to rescue someone from hell. It can mean salvation in that sense, saving you from the penalty of sin. But it's also used to talk about rescuing someone from God's discipline, like sickness that we saw in chapter 5. Rescuing someone from temptation, from the temptation of sin. Rescuing someone from the presence of sin. That's what will happen when we go to heaven. We'll be rescued from the presence of sin when we're glorified. It can mean to rescue someone from sickness or from imprisonment, if they're in prison. And it can also mean to rescue someone from a premature physical death. And I think that is the meaning in chapter 5, verse 20. James sounds a lot like the Old Testament. If you read the Old Testament and you read James, you will see that they are very, very similar. The Old Testament makes a common connection between sin and physical death. Here's an example, Ezekiel 18. 
When a righteous man turns away from his righteousness, commits iniquity, and dies because of it, for his iniquity which he has committed, he will die. Again, when a wicked man turns away from his wickedness which he has committed and practices justice and righteous, he will save his life. Literally in Hebrew, his soul. Save his soul. What, what are life and death in this passage? Is it heaven and hell? Absolutely not. This is about physical life. The Old Testament is clear. If you choose the path of sin, you are headed towards a premature physical death. In general, usually sin leads to your death. That's just a reality in life. You don't have to look far for that. You guys know who Steve McNair is? Was the star QB of the Tennessee Titans, an amazing quarterback. Well, Steve died not long ago. Why? Steve was murdered because instead of staying home with his wife and kids, he took a mistress. And when that relationship with the mistress turned sour, she murdered him. Well, Steve is proving to us when we choose a path of sin, it often leads to premature physical death. He was in his mid-30s. He could have lived much, much longer than that, but sin led him to death. That's James' point. When we believers choose to sin, it has serious consequences on our life. It leads us down the pathway of death. If we keep giving into sin, we will die prematurely. That's just how sin works. When we turn a brother or sister away from sin, we are rescuing their soul. We're saving their life from physical death. So when you see save in the Bible, don't assume we're talking about getting to heaven. Ask yourself, saved from what? That actually is the context of our passage that we're looking at this morning. Turn to verse 14. It starts with the same verb. What use is it, my brethren, if someone says he has faith but he has no works, can that faith save him? Well, the obvious answer is no. (laughs) That's clear. No, that faith can't save him, but save him from what? What is the context here? We'll look a couple verses previously, verses 12 and 13. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged by the law of liberty, for judgment will be merciless to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. The context is what will you be saved from if you do good works? You will be saved from a merciless judgment. Okay, but what is that judgment? Well, for Piper, he's going to say this judgment is the judgment of all human beings before God to determine whether you go to heaven or hell. I don't agree. I don't think that's a good interpretation for three reasons. First of all, uh, because it's based on the law of liberty. The law of liberty is the law that believers are under. It's called the law of freedom. Unbelievers aren't under the law of liberty. The law of liberty are the commands that Jesus Christ gave to his disciples that bring life and freedom. This is a judgment of believers. Second reason, if James is talking about getting into heaven or hell, then he is completely contradicting Paul. Paul says clearly we get into heaven based on faith alone. James would be saying you get into heaven based on works alone. They can't be saying the same thing. Third reason I don't think this is about getting into heaven and hell is chapter 3, verse 1. The context right around our passage is judgment. We read the beginning context. Look at chapter 3, verse 1. Right after our passage, James returns to the subject of judgment. Let not many of you become teachers, my brethren, knowing that as such we will incur a stricter judgment. Let me say very clearly, if I thought that James 2 and James 3 were about judgment, about getting into heaven or hell, I would resign my job this instant. Who in their right mind would ever be a preacher if they thought that God will hold them to a higher standard of whether they get into heaven or hell? I want to sit down with John Piper and I want to say, John, why are you a pastor? If you believe that James is about getting into heaven, why would you subject yourself to a stricter standard of judgment? This isn't about getting into heaven or hell. This is about the judgment seat of Jesus Christ. 
This is about once we, believers, are already in heaven. We've already escaped hell. We stand before Jesus Christ and he evaluates our life. Have we been his faithful stewards, servants on earth? What is that evaluation based on? Is it based on faith? No. It's based on works. Were we faithful in our works to Jesus? If we were, we receive honor and reward. He says, well done, my good and faithful servants. But what if we're unfaithful? What if we don't do good works? Then we experience merciless judgment by Jesus. We lose any eternal reward. We are rebuked by him in front of all. Actually, on this point, James and Paul are right in line with each other. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Paul and James are both telling us, why should believers do good works? Is it because that good works get us to heaven or keep us in heaven? No. It's because one day we will stand before Jesus Christ. It will be a terrifying moment of judgment. If we've done good works, then we will receive honor. We will receive reward. If we've not done good works, we will be rebuked. We will be put to shame in front of all of heaven. It's a pretty terrifying warning. Paul and James are not talking about the same judgment. James is talking about the judgment seat of Christ. If you want to be saved from a merciless judgment by your Lord and Savior, you must follow faith with good works. That's James' point. Okay, but James isn't done yet. He's not done giving us reasons for doing good works, reasons for avoiding sin. Second reason is found in the next few verses, starting in verse 15. He says, If a brother or sister is without clothing and in need of daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warmed and be filled, and yet you do not give them what is necessary for their body, what use is that? In other words, James is telling us that faith without works is useless to your brothers and sisters in Christ. If you do not follow your faith with good works, you are a useless member of the church. You are not doing any of us any good if you have faith but not works. And so James draws the conclusion from that, verse 17, even so faith, if it has no works, is dead being by itself. Now verse 17 trips up a lot of people. What does James mean by dead? In the Reformed interpretation of this passage, what does dead mean? It means non-existent. Faith without works is non-existent. It's a lie. It doesn't exist. Only problem is you study scripture and you will find there is not a single example of the word dead meaning non-existent. It never means imaginary. It always means something that was alive. It was right next to you. It was alive. It had life and vitality. Now it has died. It's powerless. It has no energy. It is useless as it sits next to you. That's what James has in mind here. He actually gives us a definition here of the, of the word dead. If you look at verse 20, James will present a parallel verse, but are you willing to recognize, you foolish fellow, that faith without works is useless? Faith without works still exists. It's sitting right next to me. It's a dead body. It's not doing anyone any good. James' point is if you have faith, but you don't have works, your faith has no vitality. It has no life. It has no powerfulness. It has no usefulness to the body of Christ. You must follow faith with works if you want to be a useful member of the body of Christ. You're you're doing nothing more than taking up space on this planet if you don't do good works. You're worthless to us unless you're doing good works. That's James' point. Now he's going to move from here and he's going to begin to illustrate his point by looking at two Old Testament figures. First Abraham and then Rahab. Let's look at that. 
He's going to look at Abraham as an illustration of the necessity of works. Why do we need good works in our lives? He's going to start by looking at Abraham. We'll pick it up in verse 21. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up Isaac his son on the altar? You see that faith was working with his works, and as a result of the works, faith was perfected. And the scripture was fulfilled which says, And Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. And he was called the friend of God. You see that a man is justified by works and not by faith alone. Now, our problem in this passage is the word justify. Seems like Paul and James are completely contradicting one another. But they're only contradicting one another if we assume that they're talking about the same act of justification. What act of justification is Paul looking at in the life of Abraham? Well, Paul is looking at the justification of Abraham in the sight of God that occurs in Genesis 15 based on faith alone. That provided Abraham eternal life. That assured that Abraham would have a relationship with God in this life and the next. But is that what James is talking about? I don't think so. Let's look at the clues. I think James is talking about a, a different justification. First, he looks at a different time in Abraham's life. He talks about the sacrifice of Isaac. That's Genesis 22. Guess what? That happened 20 to 30 years after Genesis 15. These two justifications are separated by decades in the life of Abraham. This justification not only came later, but it was different. It wasn't based on faith alone. It was based on works, actually an incredibly difficult work. Abraham had to go sacrifice his son Isaac. He had to be willing to plunge a knife into his little boy. That's the obedience that Abraham was required to express. What did that obedience bring? Well, look at the end of verse 23. And he was called the friend of God. I think this is the clue. I think this is the answer to it. We're not talking about justification in the sight of God. Who are we talking about justification in the sight of? Humanity. Because Abraham was willing to obey this incredibly difficult command, what was the result? Well, everyone, including us, 4,000 years later, still look at Abraham as a model of faithfulness. Before Genesis 22, Abraham had a, a really checkered history. Sometimes he'd obey, but sometimes he would blow it big time. Genesis chapter 20, Abraham gets afraid of the king whose land he's dwelling in. And so he passes off Sarah, his wife, as if she were, she were his sister. She gives Sarah away. He abandons Sarah. That's an incredibly unfaithful thing. If Abraham would not have responded in incredible obedience in Genesis chapter 22, we wouldn't look at him as an example of righteousness. We'd look at him as a man who God obviously loved, but man, not a, not a very righteous guy. But in Genesis 22, Abraham had his opportunity, his test. Would he do good works? Would he do this incredibly difficult good work? He does it, and what's the response? What's the result? All of the world, Jews and Gentiles alike, look back at Abraham as a model of righteousness. He is justified in our sight. We know he's a friend of God because look at what he did. We can't see his faith. Faith is an invisible thing. The only way we would know that Abraham was justified is if his works proved it, and sure enough, they did. But what if Abraham would not have been willing to sacrifice his son? I've I got to be honest with you. I haven't met my son yet. It's still going to be a few weeks before I meet him. I, I really don't know if I would be willing to kill my little boy if God told me to. i just got to be honest with you. Would you be willing to do that? Well, according to Piper's interpretation, you better or you're not going to heaven. Okay, the good news is this isn't about getting into heaven. This is about us declaring or showing our righteousness to the world through our works. 
That's the justification that Abraham has in mind. That's the same idea that's in mind in the example of Rahab, the next verse, verse 25. In the same way was not Rahab the harlot also justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way. Let me give you the details of the story really quick. Rahab the harlot, this is a woman who lived in the city of Jericho. Now God was bringing the nation of Israel against Jericho to wipe it out. And so Israel sends some spies into the city of Jericho and they get into trouble. The king of Jericho figures out that the spies are there. He begins to pursue them. And Rahab chooses to hide the spies at great personal risk. If the king would have found the spies in Rahab's house, she would have been instantly put to death. But she assumes that risk. She hides the spies. They get away. They go back to the nation of Israel. They tell Israel about Rahab. The Israelites march against Jericho. They completely wipe it out. They kill everyone except Rahab and her family. So what's the lesson that we draw? Well, the the Bible, back in the story of, of Rahab, tells us pretty clearly that she was a believer. When the spy shows up, she says, I know that the Lord, Yahweh, your God, has given you all this land. She's saying, I I believe in your God. I believe he is the God, the God worthy of fear. She had faith. That faith would have saved her. It brought her into heaven. But was that faith enough to save her physical life? Well, no. Unless Rahab was willing to follow faith in Yahweh with incredible obedience, this incredible risk to hide the spies, she would have lost her physical life with everyone else in the city. But because she followed faith with works, her physical life was spared. The nation of Israel knew this woman is righteous. This woman is a believer in Yahweh. We know because of what she did. And so we will spare her physical life. The point of both Abraham and Rahab's story is that believers, we must follow our faith with good works if we're to have any witness in this world. If people are to know that we're believers, if they're to look at us as the people of God, we have to do good works because they can't see our faith. Jesus said the same thing. How will the world know that we are his disciples? By our love for one another. By acts of love for one another. By good works. That's how we demonstrate to the world that we are followers of Jesus Christ. That's the point of looking at Abraham and Rahab. We are justified in the sight of the world. We are known to be friends of God if we follow faith with works. Now that leads to the conclusion of verse 26. For just as the body... Without the spirit is dead, so also faith without works is dead. Now, notice in this analogy, faith is the human body, works is the human spirit, and the point is that our works give vitality to our faith. Without works, faith still exists. It's like a corpse on the ground. It's still there, but it's not doing anybody any good. It has no vitality. It has no power to accomplish anything for the kingdom of God on earth. If you want to be alive and to be, and to be doing something of significance on earth, you must combine faith with works. That's James' point. Faith still exists without works, but it has no life, no vitality. Now, for some of you, you've noticed, I've walked this all the way through the passage, but I skipped two verses, didn't I? Skipped 18 and 19. Why did I do that? Well, Skipped 18 and 19 because I believe they're the two hardest verses in the entire Bible. Serious, I think these, I think these are it. I think they're the hardest verses in the entire Bible. I'm not alone in that view. Uh, most of my seminary professors shared that view, that these are the two hardest verses in the Bible. They're really hard for, for a, a reason in Greek. Uh, Greek had no way to put quote marks in the text. There are no punctuation in, in the Greek manuscripts. For that reason, we have no idea for sure in verses 18 and 19 who's speaking. Is it James speaking 
or is it this foolish fellow? We, we probably need to know because he's a foolish fellow. We, we don't want to, to, to buy into his words. So who's speaking in these verses? Well, I want to walk you guys through my view of that, but it takes some time, so I'm going to save it for the Q&A. If you come back for the Q&A, I will walk you through the text and show you why I believe uh, this view. I'll just give you the highlights. I believe we have a hypothetical objector here. We have an objector who is basically disagreeing with James. I think when you leave your theology on the ground and you just look at the text as it is, I think the best answer of the quotes is they include all of 18 and 19. All of 18 and 19 are the objector. What is he saying? Well, it's really hard to tell. We know that whatever he's saying, it's the opposite of James. That's what an objector does. He, he, he refutes you. He, he objects to you. So he's making the opposite point of James. Well, what is James' point in this passage? We need to do good works. Works are important in the life of a believer. So the objector must be saying works are really not that important. You're fine with faith alone. Uh, we know that that's the point. We know that that's his point, but we know that whatever he says, it must be foolish. James comes back, you foolish fellow. This right here, folks, is the reason that you should make sure you don't base your view of this passage on verses 18 or especially verse 19. I hear so many people quote the end of verse 19 as proof of the reformed view of this passage. The demons have faith, and yet they shudder. Well, guess what? Chances are that's the words of a foolish objector. Probably shouldn't base your view of James 2 on what is the hardest passage in the entire New Testament to interpret. It could be the views of a guy who's completely wrong. Again, if you come back for the q and I'll walk you through why I hold this view. It takes a little bit of time to explain. Whatever you do, don't base your view of James 2 on verses 18 and 19. Base your view of James 2 on your overall study of the passage in the context of the book. Okay, let's review real quick. What is the big idea this morning? Well, James and Paul are not talking about the same thing. That's crucial to get right. Don't assume that they're talking about the same thing, getting into heaven. They're talking about different things. Paul is writing to an audience of believers who have been lied to. They have been told that faith is not enough to gain eternal life. Faith is not enough to make you right with God. You must also do works of the law. And so Paul says to them, that is not true. You are justified in the sight of God by faith alone, based on the work of Jesus alone. Your works add nothing to it. You are saved from the penalty of sin from hell based on faith alone. That's Paul's point. James comes along and he says something different that is yet perfectly complementary to Paul. James is speaking to a different audience. Believers who agree with Paul. Getting into heaven is based on faith alone. And so they take that to its logical conclusion. If I know that I'm going to heaven by faith alone, then why not give in to sin? Why not enjoy all this world has? I'll give in to sin all I want. And so James writes to them and he warns them and he says, don't you realize Sin will cost you everything. It's incredibly painful. It doesn't cost you heaven, but it does cost you merciless judgment when you stand before Christ. It makes you useless on this planet. It makes you nothing more than a person taking up space. You're no good to anybody if you don't follow faith with good works. They're saying different things, different things that fit together perfectly. If we understand and apply both the words of Paul and the words of James, if we don't try to smash them together into one message, but fit them together into two complementary messages, it leads to maturity. Let me show you how. If we apply Paul to our life, what he says to our life, we gain comfort. Paul wants us to understand without a shadow of a doubt, our salvation is totally in the hands of God. 
Getting into heaven is totally based on the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. It's ours through faith alone. We can never lose it no matter what we do. Paul wants us to live with confidence. So does God. God tells us in 1 John chapter 5, these things I've written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. God wants you to know right now that you have eternal life. If you believe that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, died for your sins and rose from the dead, you are saved and God wants you to know it and God doesn't want you to doubt it. James 2 is not a cause for doubt. Paul is telling us, John is telling us very clearly, our entrance into heaven is totally secured based on the finished work of Christ that we receive through faith alone. That gives us comfort, but that's not enough. God doesn't just want us to live with comfort. He also wants to warn us that we need to be busy. We need to be busy doing good works. God doesn't want us to use the comfort of eternal security, the comfort of the words of Paul and John as an excuse to give into sin. And so he sends us the letter of James to remind us our sin won't cost us heaven, but it will cost us dearly. If we choose to give into sin over the course of our lives, we will experience merciless judgment at the judgment seat of Jesus Christ. He will rebuke us publicly. We will lose all of our eternal reward. That's in the next life. And while we're living in this life, if we choose not to follow faith with good works, then we're useless. We're doing nothing more than taking up space on this planet. James' point is there is no excuse for believers to not have good works. Good works don't get you to heaven. They don't keep you in heaven. But they are essential to our lives. They're what makes us useful on this planet. They're what brings reward and honor when we stand before Jesus Christ. If you understand Paul and you understand James chapter 2, you understand that they're saying two separate things that are complementary. It leads to maturity. Maturity as a Christian is both comfort in the security of your salvation and commitment to obey God because good works really do matter, not to get you into heaven, but to honor God on earth, to be useful on earth, and to earn reward when we stand before Jesus Christ. Let's pray for God's help to live with both comfort and commitment. Lord God, thank you so much for the book of James. Thank you for stretching us and challenging us. Thank you that as we look at the text, as we look at it as a whole, as we really seek to discover what you meant to the original audience, it's clear to us what you have to say. It's clear to us that our salvation, our entrance into heaven is secure. We don't have to worry about that. We don't have to try to evaluate our works to see if we measure up, if we're gonna get to heaven. Thank you so much that you give us confidence. Thank you, though, at the same time that through the book of James, You give us a challenge. You you kick us. You remind us of the incredible importance of good works. Please, Father, help us to be a people who lives in complete confidence of our salvation and yet walks with you in obedience every day of our lives. Help us to work hard through the power of your spirit, through the power of your son Jesus in us to do good works so that we can glorify you on earth, so that we can declare to the world that we are followers of Jesus Christ and that he is worthy of our obedience. Help us, Lord, to live with both confidence and commitment to follow Jesus Christ every day of our lives. Thank you so much for this time. I pray that all of us would honor and glorify you in our lives for the glory of your son, Jesus, in whose name we pray, amen. All right, now, like I said, you're gonna give you guys about a five-minute break. You can grab some water. You can go to the bathroom. If you have kids in nursery or elementary school, you need to go pick them up, but you're welcome to bring them back in this room. In about five minutes, I'll just open the floor. We'll do Q&A. You can write in your questions and give them to me. James 2, Romans, Piper, Reformed Faith, Arminianism, everything's free game. So I'll see you in five minutes.